Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to John chapter 13. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of John. And while you're getting settled in John chapter 13, let me just say, I don't know if you have seen it or not, but one of the most popular shows on Netflix right now is a reality show called The Mole. Have any of you seen it? Okay, like a couple of you have seen Yeah, me neither. Um, <laughs> the, the best way for me to describe it is to say that it's sort of a cross between uh, The Amazing Race and Survivor. Basically, what they've done is they've taken 12 individuals, they've placed them in a remote location in Australia, and they have to complete a series of tasks or missions. And obviously, the reason you want to complete all these tasks and missions is because there's a big pile of money at the end, and if you win, you get to have it. Uh, Unlike some of those other shows... Uh, all 12 people are sort of on the same team in this one. That is, they have to work together to complete these tasks. But there's a twist. So cue the dramatic music or the suspenseful music. The twist is that one of them is actually not on the team. One of them is a mole. And the mole's purpose is to disrupt and divide and deceive the other 11 people, the mole is there to sabotage the entire mission. And the drama of the show really revolves around the fact that no one knows who the mole is. Is it the mild-mannered firefighter from Ohio? Is it the boisterous real estate broker from New York? Is it the young psychology student? Well, you have to watch to find out. And the first episode of the show begins with all 12 individuals looking into the camera and saying, I am not the mole. 12 individuals, one of them is a traitor. They all take turns saying, it's not me. And as I saw that, I could not help but think of the passage that is before us this morning. We're looking... This morning at John 13, and we're looking at verses 18 to 30, here's what it says. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, who Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. 
You know, there are some passages that I just can't wait to preach. There are some messages that I'm super excited to share with you. And then there are some passages and some messages that I just feel I have to preach out of sheer necessity. I feel a little bit like Jude at times when he said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And what Jude was saying is, look, what I would have loved more than anything else would be able to write to this church about the salvation that we share, the amazing grace we've experienced, the good news of the gospel, the riches that are ours in Christ. But I couldn't write to you about that because I had to write to you about something more pressing. I had to tell you, you have to contend for the faith because there are false teachers. Now, I'm not preaching on false teachers today, but on false followers of whom Judas is the prototype, but of whom there are many. So out of this passage, I want to bring four reminders to you, four things. You might already know these things. Maybe you've forgotten them. Maybe you haven't thought about them for a long time, but I think they're important. And the first one is that though it is distressing, we shouldn't be surprised by defective disciples. This is a category we find in the Gospels. And whether you want to call them defective disciples or bogus believers or false followers or counterfeit Christians, or in the case of Judas here, an apostate apostle, this is a reality. There are some people who profess Christ, but do not possess Christ. There are people who have the outward appearance of being a Christian, but internally... They have no relationship with Jesus. And I said we shouldn't be surprised by that. I say that for two reasons. The first reason is because if it could be true about Judas, if it could happen to Judas, it could happen to any one of us. Now, I mentioned this last week, but Judas had access to the exact same information the rest of the disciples did. He spent three years with Jesus. He heard the same teaching, he witnessed the same miracles, he saw the same signs. But rather than choose to believe, he chose to betray. And if Jesus had 12, only 12 disciples, and one of them was an imposter, it shouldn't surprise us to say that in a church of any size, there will be some counterfeits among the mix. But the real reason I said we shouldn't be surprised is because of what Jesus says here and elsewhere. Now, the focus here is on Judas. And Jesus was not surprised or caught off guard by the betrayal by Judas. He's hinted at it before in this gospel, but now he makes a declaration about it. Specifically, he says that Judas's betrayal is the fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 18 says this. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, the scripture that's being talked about, the reference there is from Psalm 41, where it says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, 
has lifted his heel against me. Uh, That psalm is the psalm of David. It was written at a time when David was on the run from his enemies, and not just his enemies, but also from those who used to be part of his inner circle. They had turned against him, even his own children at times. Now, we're not sure if this reference to someone who has lifted up his heel against me is a reference to sort of maybe sticking out your foot and tripping someone up so that they fall, or if it's a reference to maybe lifting up your heel to step on someone or stomp on them when they're already down, or maybe it's just a reference to sort of picking up your heel and turning and walking away from them. That phrase, someone turned heel, is still used to describe upstanding characters who have become villains. Whatever the specific actions might have been, this is what Judas did to Jesus. He shared his bread, and then he turned heel. So Jesus tells the disciples it's going to happen, and that when it does, they shouldn't be surprised. Look again at verse 19. He says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. There's another I am statement from Jesus. Literally, it says, you may believe that I am. See, the fact that Jesus knows people's hearts is another indication of his deity. He doesn't just know what they're doing. He knows what they're thinking, what they're planning. So Jesus wasn't surprised. The disciples shouldn't actually have been surprised. And when we see it happen, we shouldn't be surprised either. Jesus tells us elsewhere that the love of most will grow cold. Or you might remember the parable that Jesus told about a sower sowing seed or scattering seed. And he scatters seeds on four different types of soil, right? He scatters some seed and it immediately gets picked up by the birds taken away. There's some other seed that he, that he sows that gets choked out by the thorns, and that's the, the worries of life. There's other seed that he sows that immediately kind of springs up. It looks like it's going to be profitable and produce a crop, but it withers at the first sign of trouble. Only one of the four soils actually produces a crop, and I would just say gospel work is always like that. There always have been and always will be individuals who give an indication that they are followers of Jesus only to walk away or deconstruct their faith sometime later for whatever reason. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But even knowing that, it's still distressing, isn't it? Now, what Jesus experienced in regards to this is on a whole different level than what we will experience Verse 21 says this, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. You know, there are two other times in the Gospel of John where it tells us that Jesus was either deeply moved or troubled in his spirit. The first reference is is in John 11 at the death of Lazarus. Jesus stands at his tomb and it tells us that he is deeply moved by that. He's deeply grieved by the death of his dear friend. In John chapter 12, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, but it says this, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So with the context of John Chapter 12 makes it clear that Jesus was deeply troubled or vexed in his spirit as he thought about the prospect of the cross that awaited him. 
That verb signifies horror or revulsion or anxiety or agitation, deeply troubled in his spirit. And Jesus experienced that same thing as he thought about Judas and what Judas was about to do. He was deeply troubled by this. Remember, Judas was someone that Jesus had spent significant time with. They had eaten together, they had traveled together, they had ministered together. Judas was someone that Jesus had mentored. He wasn't on the fringe. He was one of the twelve. He was part of the inner circle. And now Judas will betray him. There's no greater wound than betrayal, right? Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. To to share a meal together in the ancient world was a sign of closeness. There's a bond. So Jesus is distressed. He's also distressed, I think, because he knows what awaits Judas. Here's what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, The Son of Man goes as is written about him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Seeing someone walk away from Jesus is still distressing to us, isn't it? Now, we're not the offended party, but it's still a distressing thing. And I've been in ministry long enough to witness that very thing many times. I remember a, a young guy that came to the, the college ministry that I oversaw when I was at, at Willingdon, and uh, he had come at the invitation of a friend or been brought by a friend who happened to be a girl. She was adamant that she was not interested in any kind of relationship with him other than friendship, but she wanted to bring him to this group. He was adamant, well, that's not the reason I'm coming. And from that point on, he seemed to just come of his own accord. He would show up on Wednesday nights. He joined a Bible study. He took some of the classes. I spent some time mentoring him. Eventually, he got baptized. And then shortly after his baptism, he walked away from the whole thing. And his reason for walking away was that he thought that if he did all of those things, the girl would actually change her mind and she would be interested in him. But she wasn't. So he was able to keep the charade up as long as he thought necessary. But when that didn't work out, he was done. As a young pastor, I mean, I was so glad she didn't marry him. But as a young pastor, that was distressing to me. And sadly, I've had a front row seat to other stories like that. Some of those have taken place in the context of our church. Now, you might have your own examples of those who have turned and walked away. Maybe it was a family member. Maybe it was a close friend. Maybe it was just someone, an acquaintance at church. Now, it's ultimately not surprising when that happens, but it is no less distressing. And Jesus understands that better than anyone. Second thing we see here is that we shouldn't assume we will be able to tell true disciples from false ones. Now, there are times we can do that. Jesus tells us you can judge a tree by its fruit, right? If that tree is producing, consistently producing good fruit, it's a good tree. If that tree is consistently producing bad fruit, it's a bad tree. There are times we can observe those things. 
But it's not always the case that we can tell, or at least not tell right away. Jesus says, truly, truly, one of you will betray me. And then notice what happens in the very next verse, in verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Right? They don't know. It wasn't in any way obvious to the disciples which one of them was the mole. Now, I mentioned that show off the top, and I'll just tell you that as soon as I, sort of the 12 individuals were introduced and they started interacting with, with each other, I was pretty sure I already knew who the mole was, right? I could just figure this kind of stuff out. I mean, you just tell in sort of some vibe they're giving off or something that they're doing or say. I, I think we all think we can do that. We can tell what's real and what's fake. We're discerning. None of the other disciples knew it was Judas. Now, they spent time together. They traveled together. They ministered together. They sailed the rough waters of the Sea of Galilee together. They were a band of brothers. But one of them was a betrayer. And none of them knew who it was. Just think about Judas in particular. Based on outward appearances... He might have been the least likely candidate to be the betrayer. So so what was his job amongst the disciples? He was the treasurer. I mean, he kept the money back. Who do you usually appoint as the treasurer? Is it like the least trustworthy person? That guy seems a little bit sketchy. Let's make him treasurer. He's in charge of the finances. I mean, sometimes you wonder if that's what they do, but... It's not what you would normally do. Now, in hindsight, we know that Judas used to actually help himself or dip his hand into the money bag from time to time. But at the time, no one knew that. No one suspected that. They certainly didn't think he was going to betray Jesus. If you had taken a poll amongst the disciples, hey, who do you think the mole is that's among you? I think there would have been a few votes cast for Peter. I mean, he's kind of loud and obnoxious. Probably would have been votes for Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. Surely it's going to be him. Probably no one would have voted for the accountant, Judas. And sometimes it works out just like that. It's only in hindsight or even only after the person's death that some of this stuff comes to light. And we discover their true character. We can think of the recent example of Ravi Zacharias as an example of that. Now, Ravi was a highly respected Christian apologist and speaker. I once had the opportunity to introduce him for an event that we did at Willingdon. We prayed together before that evening. I introduced him on stage. He gave me this big hug. And I remember saying to Ilona afterwards, man, he was one of the most down-to-earth, genuine sort of celebrity Christians that I've ever met. I really liked him. After his death in 2020, it was revealed that he leveraged his reputation as a Christian leader to abuse massage therapists in the U.S., in Thailand, in India, and in Malaysia for more than a decade. A review of his old mobile devices uncovered hundreds of pictures of young women whom he had solicited the pictures from, many of whom were naked. He funneled tens of thousands of ministry dollars as kind of hush money to some of those victims. 
And when news of all that broke, I remember receiving a bunch of emails from people that basically said the same thing. Look, I read his books. I saw his debates. I listened to his lectures. I benefited from his teaching. He would have been the last person I would have suspected of something like that. And sometimes it's like that. Now, I'm not sharing this to create a culture of suspicion among us. Oh, I wonder about them. But just saying, look, we ought to be really careful assuming that we know the true state of a person's soul. Now, I said we shouldn't assume we will be able to tell false disciples from true ones. And I have to expand on that by saying two additional things. The first is that while we can't always tell, Jesus always knows. We can't always tell, but Jesus always knows. He and Judas were the only ones who knew who the mole was. Jesus always knows. Now, you and I might be able to fool our friends. We can maybe fool our family. But we cannot fool Jesus. Jesus knows our heart. He knows what's in it. And this passage helps us understand that even in the midst of this betrayal, I mean, even when it looked like, to Judas at least, I'm sure he thought, no one knows that Jesus knew. And he gives Judas this morsel of bread and says, go and do what you're doing quickly. The second thing I have to add to that is that we shouldn't exempt ourselves from that. So what does that mean? Well, when you read this same account in the Gospel of Matthew, it says this. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? It's a good question. It's good to do some self-examination from time to time. It's good to pray along with the psalmist. Search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there are any wicked ways in me. Again, the goal here is not to get people questioning their salvation. The goal is not to have you doubt the legitimacy of your faith. Some Christians have an unhealthy preoccupation with sort of navel-gazing, wondering if their performance measures up. I just don't feel saved today. I'm not trying to stoke those fires. The entire book of 1 John is written so that we might have the assurance of salvation. John will say this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So assurance of salvation is good. False assurance is bad. Paul wrote these words to the Christians in Corinth. He said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. See, self-examination is good. It's important to make sure we're not just sort of playing church, showing up, doing the right things, saying the right words. Jesus has lots to say about those who practice their righteousness in order to be seen by others. Those who give, those who pray, those who fast. Not out of an act of worship, but as a way to make an impression on others around them. Jesus says they've received their reward in full. Jesus also issues repeated warnings that there will be some surprises on judgment day. 
And so what I want to say to you, really what I want to plead with you, is that we sort this out on this side of eternity. It's the third truth we learn about here, and that is that we shouldn't underestimate the power of the devil. So the disciples all wanted to know, who was the traitor in their midst? And they take turns asking Jesus about it. One of the disciples, most likely John, is leaning against him and asks him. And then verses 26 and 27 say this, Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Some people have wondered, is this sort of like a reverse communion, right? He takes the morsel of bread and then Satan enters into him. I'm not sure that's exactly what John is driving at. Verse 2 has already told us that the devil had put this idea into Judas's heart earlier, right? Verse 2 says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So that's been going on a long time. What John's helping us understand now is that Judas is now under the full control of the devil. He gets up from the meal and he does exactly what Satan has put into his heart to do. That is a scary thought. And it's one that we shouldn't dismiss or ignore. Now, if we were doing a full treatment on what the New Testament has to teach us about this subject, I would probably say then we shouldn't overestimate or underestimate the power of the devil. This whole issue of spiritual warfare is a thorny one. We need to have clear thinking about it. We need to base it on what the Bible teaches us. I know I've shared this with you before, but the book that's probably helped me the most in reminding me of the spiritual forces that are behind the struggles that we face is C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. In the preface to that book, Lewis says this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive, an unhealthy interest in them. Those are two common errors. We want to avoid both of those pitfalls. If you're familiar with that book, then you know that Screwtape Letters is really a fictional collection of letters that a senior demon, Screwtape, has written to a junior or a novel novice demon, his nephew, Wormwood. And in one of his letters, Screwtape says this. He says, the fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in your mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Right? You understand the strategy. If the picture in our minds is sort of the cartoonish version of the devil wearing red pajamas and a pitchfork, I'm sure you'll see it on Halloween. If that's the picture... None of us will take it with any kind of serious thought. But that's not how the devil is spoken about in the, in the Bible. And we ignore what the Bible says about him to our own peril. It's, it's not talked about much, but I think we greatly underestimate the reality of this in our world. You know, whenever there's like a... a, a big story, a shooting rampage, a killing spree, you will hear news outlets trying to get to the root cause. Why did this happen, right? What would possess a person to fire, to, to go into a school and, and, and kill a bunch of innocent kids? Or what would possess a person to get in their car and plow through a group of people at a parade? 
And we're all puzzled by stuff like that. So we look for scientific or psychological explanations, and those have their place. And I'm not trying to oversimplify a complex issue, but don't you think at least part of the explanation for those things can be demonic forces or demonic possession? And you don't actually just have to think of the most horrific instances. Uh, Many of you will be familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira from the book of Acts. You know that story. This is the couple. They sold a piece of their property. They gave the proceeds, or at least they they made it look like they were giving the proceeds of that sale to the church. Everyone would congratulate them. You're so generous. But in reality, they were actually holding back some of that money. And the issue was not the amount that they gave, but the fact they were deceptive about it. Listen to what Peter said to Ananias. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? See, Peter's question is interesting, right? He doesn't say, how could you be so greedy? How could you be so selfish? But how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you would do this? Now, this doesn't mean we can just fall back on, oh, the devil made me do it, excuse, whenever we do wrong. But it does mean that much of what we do is impacted by spiritual forces beyond our sight. And I think we're often blind to this. So Paul will tell us this. He'll say, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Other translations translate that as, do not give the devil a foothold. I think it's worth asking ourselves, are there areas of our lives where we have given the devil a foothold? Again, we don't need to do this in some kind of sensationalistic way, but we do need to watch out for this. The Apostle Peter will later say it this way, be sober-minded, be watchful. And why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So don't underestimate the devil's power in this world. Our ultimate struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. I know this hasn't been a a super cheery kind of message so far. So I just need to bring you one more reminder, which is that we shouldn't forget that darkness doesn't have the last word. Now, our passage actually ends on an ominous note. Verse 30, it says this. So immediately, or so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Now, John tells it to us this way because it was night. This was the time of day that this happened. They had just had a meal. Now it was night. But that reference means more than that. One of the themes we've seen throughout the Gospel of John is the contrast between light and darkness. And that contrast is also seen in the contrast between day and night. There are three other references to night that we find in the Gospel of John. John chapter 9. Jesus heals a man who was blind, and he does so on the Sabbath. Religious leaders are upset by that, and here's what Jesus says. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. In John 11, the disciples were concerned for Jesus' safety. They wonder if he should operate in a more secretive manner. In response, Jesus says this, If anyone walks in the night, 
He stumbles because the light is not in him. The third reference is to Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus by night. Why did he come? Because it was under the cover of darkness. Every reference to night in the Gospel of John carries with it the idea of a darkness that is more than just physical. So when Judas leaves the upper room and ventures out into the night, it sets in motion a series of events in which it looks like darkness reigns. Judas will come back with a group of soldiers, officers, Pharisees, and priests. Jesus will be handed over to them, arrested, interrogated, beaten, mocked, spit upon, and ultimately crucified. From the hour of his crucifixion until the hour of his death, darkness reigned over the earth. But as the Gospel of John makes clear from the very beginning, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, Jesus is the light, and the darkness did not overcome him. So I just want to say, however dark the night might look to you right now, darkness will not have the last word. There is no darkness that can overcome the light of Jesus. And that is true in the micro context of our individual lives, and it is true in the macro context of our entire world. When you look out and you are tempted to despair and say, man, it looks like we've lost this one. We ought to remember, can you imagine how the disciples would have felt? When you you think about this, Jesus is going to be arrested He's going to be handed over to the authorities. He's crucified. We know the end of the story. They didn't. It looked like darkness would reign, but in Jesus, it does not. The darkness has not overcome the light, and we ought to remember that as we go through this world. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious news of Jesus' resurrection, that the darkness could not snuff him out. We thank you for that truth. We thank you that though we sometimes feel like we're in a dark world, Lord, we know that your light is more powerful than anything. We pray we would live by that. God, even as today, as we've considered this truth, this sad truth, that there are sometimes those who turn away, sometimes those who betray. God, we know that you're in control of all things. Just as you were in control of this, you had foreknowledge of everything that would take place. God, would you help us to have the courage we ought to have in the face of whatever we're experiencing? And would our hope not be in others, but in you? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.